0: Welcome to Decision Decision Space, Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And today, dear listener,
1: we have an episode, a what we talk about episode on the size of decision spaces and also the concept of depth in decision spaces. And these are two basically different terms that I think get equated to each other a little bit more often than Jake and I would like to see. And then we're also going to delve into what does size mean? What do we mean when we say this game has a large decision space versus small decision space? And of course, we'll do the same talking about depth. And then we'll try to get at what does depth mean? Are there specific qualities in a game that give a game depth? Also, in classic decision space fashion, I think we're probably biting off more than we can chew. Uh, (laughs) But I think that's what makes for exciting, energetic shows. So. There's a lot that we're going to get into. And I think you'll leave the show today with a better understanding of how to think about size, what that can mean, the different ways that decision spaces can be large, uh, the ways in which that can be meaningful or not. And then also what might make a game deep or what might not make a game deep. And and what does that mean?
0: Yeah, no, I, I definitely think so. I think it's going to be a really good episode. Um, and just some of the articles that we looked at Prior to this, already have sort of changed the way I think about uh, the concept of decision space size, which is something we invoke at almost every single episode without probably as much clarity around exactly what we're talking about as there could be. So I think this episode has the potential to be illuminating and also make our future conversations on this show more informative. And so that's what it's all about. Nice. That would be awesome. As we've done in the
1: past, all what we talk about episodes, just stacking on the tree of knowledge. Okay, so first up, I already said it, but I'm saying it again because it's really, really, really important. Size does not equal depth in games, right? Like the bigger a decision space is, it doesn't inherently mean it's a deeper or more interesting decision space.
0: True. I agree. I think uh, going all the way back to like the very early episodes of this show where we talked about kind of like the toy game of life, right? Like you could have like you know just think of a decision space that is like infinitely large uh and it's so 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 big that it essentially amounts to nothing at all because you can't really make any meaning in that. Right.
1: I think that one thing when we get into when we discuss depth will be what Jake just said, which is like the your decisions have to be meaningful decisions even if you're given hundreds of options. If you don't understand the consequences of those options, you can't make meaningful decisions. And then you're not engaging with the depth of that experience because you're essentially picking randomly between those options. So size doesn't automatically mean that you're going to have a deep decision space. And the flip side is,
0: yep. I said, or it could actually be purely random, you know, here's a hundred, here's a hundred doors, you know, varying points behind each one. You can pick any of them. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Okay. That's big decision, like size. But utterly without meaning.
1: Right. No, exactly. Uh, So I think that that's a really interesting observation to kick us off. So part one of this episode is going to mostly be talking about size, and then part two is going to be talking about depth. So we'll sort of treat them as a little bit different concepts, because they are, uh, and maybe touch on where there might be um, some overlapping that leads to some of the confusion. But so size. Size is just like how robust, to give an off-the-cuff definition, right? How, how large is the decision space overall? Uh, and I think on, in this, we're going to be relying a lot on the metaphor that you see in a lot of scholarly work on decision making, um, which is decision trees, right? So every time you make a decision, there's a decision point, uh, which in a lot of the scholarship is called a node. And then from that decision's point, uh, it branches, right? Where if at that node, you can pick option A or option B, uh, each leading to their own node with more options. Uh, So in that sense, the decision tree uh, can basically be defined as like, you could talk about the state space, which is the size of the objective decision space. What are the absolute number of unique legal positions that can be reached from the initial position in a game?
0: I think that's something that we do a lot when we talk about, you know, when we're characterizing the decision space uh, and we talk about the size. That's sort of the type of thing that we're typically getting into, right? Mm. You know, where you could say, you know, just going back to our last episode on Lost Cities, right? We're talking about, okay, you have this many cards in your hand that you can theoretically play. You can play each of them into one or two spaces. But then we have sort of added in the additional consideration. Is that like at least some number of choices are going to be objectively bad? Right. So, where they would fit into the objective decision space size, you could do this thing. It's not really something that we're considering when we think about the size of decision space.
1: Which is really interesting because, in the Lost Cities example, right, Jake, the state space of Lost Cities is actually functionally huge, right? There are 60 cards in the game and you could have really weird suboptimal decisions to your point where certain cards end up on the table, but they're not really interesting. So that's why we end up with a game where like the state space of decisions of lost cities is like because of the compun- notorics of how cards can go down on the table could it's I'm sure massive like millions. But we'd characterized it as feeling small because subjectively so many of those legal positions aren't. Positions players are typically going to find themselves in
0: right I think that makes sense so and I think the reason I bring that up is just to point out the fact that like when we talk about decision space size historically on this podcast we are actually talking about something more nuanced than just the size, literal objective size of the decision space. Totally. And
1: we've covered this a little bit before if you're interested in going back and listening to our episode on objective and subjective decision spaces. I don't have the episode number in front of me, but it's probably about 40 episodes before this one. Uh, and it kind of delves a little bit deeper into this. And just one more example to sort of illustrate the point here. Uh, oftentimes when people talk about state space uh, and the is that you can basically artificially bloat this number. So like in chess... Uh, You can find the state space of chess, the number of legal positions that are possible, but you could also add to the rules of chess that every time you make a move, you flip a coin Uh, and then you record if the coin is showing heads or tails, that would increase the state space size of chess dramatically, but it wouldn't actually do anything to the meaningful decision space of chess, right? Just because it's a legal position, if the coin is showing heads or showing tails doesn't mean that the decision space actually changes or is interesting.
0: In that example, just to make sure I understand it, are you saying that flipping a coin there is just something players record and have no bearing on the actual game? or or does Yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, it's like a toy game example, right? Like it's just, you could flip a coin, it's legally a different state that the game could be in,
0: but it has no bearing. Right. Okay, and what's the value of that to you? Like, why do you bring that up? I think that this gets
1: sort of at the idea of like the difference between meaningful information and not meaningful information, right, where that's like an extreme example of not meaningful information in a game. And I think that that's a spectrum. And that's important, right, that like the the spectrum of meaningful information can go to like, completely meaningless doesn't impact the game, but the game's rules tell you to do it to this information is something that I could be paying attention to me to. But right now, with the way that I'm engaging in the game, it doesn't feel meaningful that the decisions that I'm making, to this information is completely pertinent and it's factoring into every decision that I'm making. And I think that when we get into depth later in the episode, your ability to interact with information along that spectrum, I think is important to, to depth, right? Where as a deeper game, you're going to, the more you play, engage more and more with information that doesn't feel as meaningful when you're learning the game and it will actually impact what you can do in the game and impact the consequences. So I think that it's important for me to bring that up as this illustration that all information in games is on this spectrum from incredibly meaningful and important to useless. Right. Okay. Is that helpful? I think so.
0: Yeah, okay. I, I was just a little bit confused for a second.
1: Because you would never do that in a real game.
0: Of just like, you have to record this even though it's functionally different or functionally the same rather. So this kind of conversation about size both about the the functional uh, state space and yeah. about branching the branching factor of games right how how much how much it branches off each node is making me think about the concept that we've talked about a little bit before as well which is just like bandwidth right mm. where it feels like games that have a larger decision state space and a larger branching factor might just be more computationally intensive requiring more bandwidth with your brain uh, rather than actually offering greater depth yeah. and i think i think you find this a lot in and it can be like a really fun brain teaser puzzle it's actually something i think you find a lot in the dueling card game genre genre that i really love um where you know on your turn you're thinking through a really long sequence of plays Uh, that actually, you know, in any one of those, it might be very clear what the optimal decision is at any given node, but it goes on so long and creates so much like just complexity in terms of computing the whole thing that when you're actually playing it out, it becomes a real skill to do it in the right order without making mistakes or forgetting a step along the way.
1: Which I think, Jake, that for me is an example of how size can lead to depth. Because in some ways, I think that when we get into talking about what was the word that you just used, Uh, bandwidth, I think bandwidth is potentially a way in which games can introduce depth, because if you're making mistakes, that's a a way in which skill is introduced in the game, right? If you're going to perform perfectly to always make the right decision and not make mistakes, I do think is an example of depth, right? If it's more computationally difficult, difficult, but. I guess we need to get to the point of the conversation where we talk define what we think depth is, and then do that. So let's let's continue on if you'll if it's okay, okay talking about size, and then we'll swing back to that idea and sort of talk about how size relates to depth. So I guess we'll talk about branching factor, which Jake invoked, um, and I think we in previous episodes have called this like breadth, the breadth of the decision space. And that idea that Jake just said is like at every node, how many nodes spawn from that node? So at a decision point. Do you have two decisions? Do you have three decisions? Do you have four decisions? And from those decisions, how many more decisions come, right? Like a game where one decision point ha- leads to, has a branching factor of, or it branches every time twice. So like I make a decision and I'm either choose A or B. And then at A or B, I make another decision that each have their own A and B is going to feel really different than a game where I make a decision between A, B, C, D, and E. And then each of those paths has a, B, C, D and E from them. So the ability for things to end up in vastly different places is much greater in a game where that branching is higher than it is where it's more narrow.
0: Yeah. I, I think um Keyforge is a game that is a really great example of this. Uh so in Keyforge you have this choice at the beginning of every single turn. Let's which of the three houses in your deck are you going to activate that turn? And each of those means you know vastly different things right because you get to play cards from that house activate cards from that house so i find myself on many turns in a game of keyforge of functionally playing through the branching decision space of each of those three houses to determine like what is the best course of action uh, and you know following any one of those paths down to its logical conclusion can be a very complex, right? Cause it's, I have two cards to play and two cards out. What order, how do I sequence this? What do I do with each thing? What targets do I pick? If I pick target a with this card, then maybe I'm fighting target a with this. But if I choose target B, then I'm reaping with this creature and so on and so forth times three. Yeah,
1: <laughs> And I think that that's a really good point, Jay, because it illustrates that the, depending on what the board state looks at at the start of your turn, it's not like a consistent thing, branching factor, It typically in real games, right? Like sometimes the branching factor in a turn of Keyforge might be really small actually, because you might just be picking, you might have no cards on the board, your opponent has no cards on the board, and you're picking, do I play these three cards? Do I play these two cards? Or do I play this one card from this one house, depending on what I choose? Or you might have 20 cards on the board in Between three different houses, and then that just like exponentiates and your branching factor is like in the hundreds for KeyForge or something, right? Maybe even greater than that. And I think that so it's just important to think about conceptually how branching factor changes for games at different points in the game. Uh, And I think that there's a really interesting Wikipedia article on branching factor, actually, which we'll link in our uh, show notes and description and it talks about how people have done studies of both chess and go's decision spaces and chess has an average branching factor of 35 so on average whenever you make a go to make a move in chess there's 35 options in terms of decisions that you could make to to do next and go has an average branch factor of 250 uh so it just that's a it's an interesting that's way to more. think about That's that is significantly more for and at some point right it sort of gets to the point where how many of those are what we'll call like real decisions versus options or choices. Um, But I think this is a really useful term in sort of thinking about size. And sometimes when we talk about the size of a decision space, I think we actually mean branching factor,
0: right? Definitely. And I think on its face too, without going in any more in depth, I think this could be a useful tool for people uh, listening to the show or maybe just. You know, when when we talk about this in the future or maybe think through the games in your collection, I think there might be uh, something that people haven't thought enough about that certain players have real preferences for. Uh, I think there are going to be players like me who really enjoy that, you know, existing in that decision space where you're thinking through all these complicated sequence of plays on your turn and, and find a lot of joy out of that. Even if each one of those decision nodes, is fairly straightforward. You know, and okay. like you, if you can calculate it all out, you can come to a pretty clear decision versus, you know, a choice that's not optimal at most of, if not all of those nodes on a given turn. Whereas other gamers might be people who like decision spaces that are a lot more straightforward, a, lot, a much more reined in branching factor, right? Where you have just less uh, total number of decisions on your turn, but each one of those decisions is perhaps a lot less clear about finding the best answer to.
1: I think, too, one thing, oftentimes people talk about how certain Euro games can feel puzzly, Jake. And I think a lot of times, puzzly games have a really large branching factor. Like, I think A Feast for Odin might be a really good example of a, a game with a huge branching factor, where on your turn, there's just so many things you could potentially do. So a lot of what you're doing in that game is searching through that huge list of worker placement locations that you could go uh, and making the right decision. Where, like, at the start of the game in *A Feast for Odin*, the branching factor might be—I don't know—in a given turn, it's like over fifty or something. It's huge. Whereas, I've been also been playing a lot of War Chess lately, um, and War Chess is this abstract game where you always have—you start your turn at most with three tokens, and those three tokens dictate what you can do. So it keeps the branching factor relatively small. There's multiple uses for some of the tokens, so it maybe it doubles, uh, but if you Basically, you play your whole hand, so you have three tokens, then two, then one. When you have one token, there's usually only one or two things that you can do, but I still find that decision space to be really, really interesting. And I think sometimes for me, Jake, when a game has a smaller branching factor, it's easy for me to figure out where I went wrong in my decisions than a game with this massive branching factor where the the implications of my decisions 30 turns ago, just so much could have been different that sometimes it can be hard to tell where I went
0: off the path, Right. the winning path. Right. I think that makes I think it's a great example. So just as far as this goes, I think it's, you know, this is a useful, applicable concept to, to people listening to this show. And I think, you know, maybe listeners would do well just to kind of think through some of their top 10 games and, and see if they can if they notice a pattern of, you know, I, I enjoy these kind of large branching factor games like I do. And, and it's also kind of a place where maybe our preferences don't align perfectly, which is interesting as well.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. There's So now that we sort of laid this out and like people hopefully have this visual metaphor of like the branching factor of a given game and the just game tree size, I think it's interesting to make the point that longer games have typically, and I'm using longer here, not to say like rounds, but just number of turns that you take, the number of decisions that you make are going to have more nodes vertically in their tree, right? Like a five, a five decision game, if I have... Five turns and I make five decisions on the turn. This is a really simple game, it has five vertical nodes, right? That could branch from there. Whereas a longer game is going to have many more. Like in War Chess, you take, I just played a game where there were, I had like 43 turns and I make two decisions per turn. That's a pretty long tree. But depending on the game, a, more decisions, it's going to be a taller tree. And I think that that can lead to a larger size. But even more important is the branching factor because just the computatorics of at every given node, I can make two choices versus ten. Just the way that that math works out, it just becomes massive. If you have ten options from every node, the the total size the tree could be compared to two at every point.
0: Does that? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Okay, for sure. And I think uh, thinking about a lot of the kind of euro games uh, that I like, and I think that often kind of rise up are are these games that do have this like massive branching factor. And I think that's just something that really appeals to a lot of people. Like the example that's coming to my head now is just multi-use cards. Like who Mm. doesn't like multi-use cards? It's like, well, every different use you put on that card is an extra branch Mm -hmm. for every decision node in the game when you'd use a card. Yeah.
1: I think that for sort of the sometimes we dip into talking about design too. And I think that it's a really good point that part of your player feeling clever is the, for me, the appeal of games with large branching factor is that I get to solve a puzzle, right? Like, I mm-hmm. love multi use cards because I get to figure out the best use for it. And when I find a use that seems clever out of all those uses, especially if it goes against what I would typically make for a decision, I get to feel really smart because I've like navigated yeah. these dicey waters. Whereas if there's only two options, I don't feel as clever when I find the right option. Even if, if it's really a close call between these two options, I might have the ability to become a better player at that game than the game with a huge branching factor.
0: Definitely. Yeah, I was sort of saving this for when we talk about depth, but I think... Uh, since since you brought that up like i think a lot of the fun that's in these large branching factor games like a feast for odin is a great example yeah is you start out with very very little uh in terms of guiding points right to to start you down a correct path you have a huge board uh, and we're, we'll, we'll get into a conversation about heuristics as we talk about depth maybe you have some heuristic guiding post that's going to help you t- to some of the action spaces over another. But I think a lot of the fun is like curating that massive branching decision space down to a turn where you're like, yes, I got exactly the space that I needed because of like, you've actually sculpted the decision space uh, to to get to that point where From this massive Mm. nebulous decision space, you've actually brought the game down to one single space and now you get to take that action. Um, That is, I think, something that I find tremendously fun in games.
1: I feel like what you're talking about too, Jake, just to clarify, is like at the outset, everything's completely fuzzy. And then through your decisions, through navigating that path, you've created a decision point where you have one optimal move and you know what it is before it even gets to your turn and then you get to do it. So like you've liberated yourself from having to search through the all of the different branches because you have this decisional momentum moving through the decision tree where you just know, okay, next turn I'm gonna do this and then the next turn I'm gonna do that. So it feels like you're running in a way. Whereas in the previous turns you're like bogged down and trying to do I go left or do I go go right or do I Pick option D.
0: Trudge, you're trudging through mud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just exactly. just to be like really specific to a feast for Odin, I think this would be true in a lot of other games. Is like perhaps you played an occupation card. That means when you take a certain action, mm. you get a benefit, and then you've spent time uh, and and worker resources to collect you know the the type of you know goods that you need uh, in order to take this action that synergizes well with the. Uh, occupation that you have already right so you're like doing these things that are like literally changing that decision space for you
1: this also i think reminds me of sort of uh of arnak lost ruins of arnak and a lot of times when we talked about that game we've had a little bit of trouble putting into words why we really enjoy it um and i think that for me what it might be is the decisional momentum of that game i like getting a card early on that sort of makes my decisions easier or easier. Like I get the War Club that says, whenever I play this, I can just get rid of a Guardian. Great. Now I know whenever I draw that card, I'm just trying to get access to a Guardian so I can use the War Club and get a huge efficiency bonus. Um, and I think part of the joy of these really complex games, like you're saying, what? excuse me, we have better language for that now. These large decision space games with high branching factor, part of the joy for <laughs> it is like, n- putting yourself in a position where you can just ignore
0: a lot of the branches. Yeah. It's like, I'm like reading the matrix now. Like what was at once just like noise is now crystal clear. Totally. And to know, to know you're doing the right thing. That's the key,
1: right? Like I could just ignore it at the outset, but that's not very fun. It's the fact that I know I, I have the freedom to ignore it and feel
0: good about it. And then depth would be, Knowing that you're doing the right thing and then realizing three or four plays <laughs> later that what you knew was right is actually maybe not. Sure. And the next time being able to make the right decision in
1: that in that situation. Totally.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, so the, just because you know it's right doesn't mean it actually it, is. It actually is. <laughs> yeah, <totally. laughs> I think that's the case in A Feast for Odin a lot. Yeah. Actually.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe now is a really natural time in the conversation to talk about depth, because I feel like we've sort of defined a lot of things about size. And I think size is an interesting conversation, but it's one we're sort of always having on the show. Yeah. Uh, and now we're equipped with like new tools. That's great. I'm sure we'll go back to, to it in this episode, but let's talk about depth. So we often hear people, Jake, say that's a really deep game I, or people are fond of deep games, right? Like, but what does that actually mean? I think it's helpful to have a definite definition for that. And I think for me, a deep game is one that rewards persistent play. The more time that I play it, the more I know that I'm going to understand the game better and have the potential to be better at that game. Um, and it, it means a game with a very large uh, skill ladder. We've talked about this point in the past, right? This idea where uh, a skill ladder in a game is basically the number of unique skill states that can exist in terms of how good someone is at in that game. Um, So a game like chess has a really, really, really tall skill ladder. And a game like rock, paper, scissors has a pretty narrow one because it's much easier to be skilled at chess than it. It's much more difficult to be skilled at highly skilled at chess than it is to be highly skilled at rock, paper, scissors because the randomness of rock, paper, scissors prevents anyone from being that much better than anyone else. Though you can definitely be good at rock, paper, scissors. Compared to the average person,
0: yeah, I'm curious because I the way I was thinking about skill ladder uh, is, is less so about like how much somebody has the capability to improve at it, and more so like how likely it is that somebody at a higher rung on that ladder will beat somebody at a I think lower that's a good way skill that's level. Because I think somebody you know, rock paper scissors is kind of a weird example because it's so simple, sure. but I still believe like. If somebody really set out and like dedicated themselves to becoming really good at rock, paper, scissors, like over like many, many, many repeated plays, they probably would gain an advantage over a complete novice. It just wouldn't necessarily manifest in that one play. Whereas in the example of chess, right, if I've, you know, if I'm playing somebody brand new at chess, I'm going to beat them almost for sure. Whereas if I'm playing somebody who's actually like participated at in like a chess club, even at like a low level, like they're going to beat me almost for sure. And like anybody who's like, you know, ranked, like, I don't know what the tiers are, but like master is going to beat that person almost yep. for sure.
1: I think that that's a really good point, Jake. And we talked about this some in the Star Realms episode where Star Realms takes a ton of skill to play, but the best players in the world have about a 60. 60- two percent win rate at the game or 65 whatever it is versus something like chess where the best players in the world against a random opponent have probably a 99.9 percent win rate right that's the difference in that skill ladder between those two games
0: and i think that's like an interesting and important concept for like understanding games and their decision space but i'm not sure i don't think you can just say like because the skill ladder is more distinct and defined in chess that it's like inherently deeper than star realms. I don't know. What do you think?
1: I think that that's a really interesting question and it's really hard. And I think it's so much is tied up in what is depth. Uh, right. And I think for me, depth is the presence of meaningful considerations in the game, right? Like the more meaningful considerations that I can make in terms of making a decision, the the deeper that game is because there's more I could be paying attention to. Well, in terms of what goes into the decision that I can make.
0: Let's back up. I liked your first definition. What was my first step? More than what you just said, which is like, am I getting better at the game Mm. with repeated plays? And to me that I think that's a great definition uh, for whether a game has depth and like, you know, if, if you can play a thousand times and you're still getting better, that's like a very deep game. Whereas like if you hit a cap at 20,
1: it's not as deep.
0: It's not as deep. And I think that kind of gets around this like skill ladder thing being the super distinct rungs being yeah. what's important. Because I think you can continue getting better at both Star Realms and Chess after a thousand plays. It's just there's just more randomness in Star Realms, meaning that like a newer player has a better chance at beating you in that than a no luck game. And I don't think that no luck games are inherently deeper than games with randomness.
1: I think that that's a really, really important joke. Point, Jake. I'm glad that you made that. That higher skill game like a game with a larger skill ladder doesn't mean it has more depth. It means that there is depth present in the game. But as long as there's a reasonably a reasonable skill ladder present, the game is probably deep, right? Like tic-tac-toe doesn't have an interesting skill ladder and it's not a deep game. But once you have a, a skill ladder, it starts to be independent. It starts to be more related to the randomness of that game than the depth of that game, probably about how tall that ladder can become. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Huh. I have to think about that more.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think the, the, the chance of a less skilled person to be a more skilled person in the game doesn't necessarily tell me a lot about how many rungs are present in a skill ladder. Sure. Because like in star realms or like magic gathering, whatever, like, you you use star realm. So we'll keep going down that path. If if the most skilled players have like a 62% win rate. Yep. Like if I have a 62% like win rate over you who has a 62% win rate over, you know, person C and Paul has a 62% like win rate over me, mm-hmm. you know, then like, I think we're still creating the same type of like same vertical height in the skill ladder. It's just that there's like a greater upset potential. Sure. An upset factor is higher.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. I think that that's a really, really good point. Maybe we even jumped the gun a little bit here, Jake, because we didn't really talk about like, why do we care about deep games? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Right? No, and, I, and that, that was me. But I think like, that's an important point, right? Like, what who cares? Like, what what's the point of a deep game? And I think that a lot of that is because I think that people like deep games. It's a quality of games that at least we say that we want in our games. Um, I think whether or not that's borne out within the market of like how the type of games people are buying when they pick up board games, I think, who knows? But when we think about the type of games that we want to play, I think I would say I want to, I would rather play a deeper game than a simpler game most of the time.
0: Yeah, I think deeper than shallower would be a better kind of like spectrum than deeper or simpler. Because simple games can be incredibly deep. deep. Like for me to to the point about why do we want deep games? You know, I think there's this kind of like phrase that has been in the back of my head since I was ever like aware of games, which is like five minutes to learn a lifetime to master as like sort of this like golden ideal for for like what games can be at their like best, the most succinct core. Yeah. We can have a conversation about whether that's really ideal or if that's really what people actually do want or what they just say they want but i do think that feeling is definitely out there like in the market and if today if i see a game like like rift force is the most recent example of that for me where i'm like okay this is like hitting that five minutes to learn lifetime to master and i'm you know maybe after 50 more plays of rift force i'll say actually i've you know i've kind of sorted this out but Like at at least for now, like when I first played that and then like learned so much after the first play and then learned more after the second, third, fourth play, I was like, okay, this is very cool that it's like so simple and yet like has so much to teach me about the system.
1: I feel like a big part of that too, at least for me, Jake, is so much it's tied up in this idea that like play is my time spent playing a game is rewarding me by making me understand the game better and being better at the game. And I want that. Like it feels like there's real value to me when I play games and getting better at them. Like I enjoy psychologically the experience of that process as a human, like getting better at things is just a pleasant thing. Like Mm -hmm. when I go to cook breakfast, I want to be better at cooking breakfast tomorrow than I am today, even if it's just like a tiny bit better at cooking breakfast. And when I play games, I want to be able to have the experience of getting better at something because as a human being it's nice to be better at something so i think that like that is partially what's creating that perception in terms of the ideal version of a game that i would like to play do you think that's fair
0: yeah i do and i'm curious do you think this conflicts at all with uh, t wins idea of uh striving play where mm. because you know i i just i'm hearing his like voice in the back of my head telling me like No, wait, I don't actually like want to get better as the goal. I want to like continue to like enjoy this challenge. And if I'm getting better than my opponents at a faster rate, like pretty soon that like I won't be able to like enjoy the struggle to the same extent. And I'll just add on to that thought, like one thing like I do agree, like a big part of the reason I play games and a, a lot of the joy I get out of it is like getting better. And I do like winning games, (laughs) you know, Uh, especially when it's like I'm playing online and it's like tracking my ego on board game arena or whatever, or on Yukata. And I can see like, oh, I'm in the top 10% of players this game. Like, I like that. That's validating to me. But also, I don't typically tend to like buy the games to own in person that I've played a ton online because of the fact that I feel like I won't be able to have that like striving play. Challenge against people that I would introduce it to in person because I played it so much and got so good. I don't think that they're opposed.
1: Is what I'm going to say. I think that the a game with more depth has more room to strive if you can find the right opponents. Right, like if you can consistently match with skilled opponents, then you are going to be able to strive, experience striving play in that game for a longer period of time than you would in a shallower game. But I think the context of play, playing board games oftentimes in our lives translates towards I've strived as far as I can strive with the opponents that I have access to. But I think in our heads, we imagine like there's great value in being good at Tigris and Euphrates because I want to be able to sit down and play Tigris and Euphrates against whomever and be able to hold my own, right? Like this is a really deep game. I, I guess I just don't see them as opposed, but I see the point you're trying to make. But I don't think that like the room, just because you run out of local opponents who are as skilled as you, doesn't mean they're opposing ideas, striving play and depth.
0: I think what you said is a really interesting idea. And what it makes me think, maybe this is just bad paraphrasing. So tell me if you don't agree. Okay. That like depth in games only matters in so far as you have opponents to like engage with at your same level. Mm. So like like chess has like tremendous depth and that's fantastic because there's chess clubs and you can play chess online everywhere. That's why I like playing games on board game arena that have high depth. You know, people play like hundreds and thousands of times because they're continue to engage in that depth. Whereas like that depth doesn't matter as much to you if you don't have people playing at the same level in person, which makes I, me think overall that depth is less important for like a physical copy of a game that somebody would buy than probably the billing that it gets. I think I agree with what you're saying,
1: but I think it depends on if you're an achievement player or a striving player, right? Because the the player who's playing with a striving mindset, just wanting to get better, doesn't care if they're winning or losing so long as they're getting better at the game, right? So like, as long as my opponent is willing to play and I continue to improve, I'm okay continuing to play that game as long as I'm learning. But if you're right that if I'm primarily playing from an achievement, or at least somewhat, achievement play perspective... If I get good enough that I can always beat my opponent, it doesn't matter that I could get five times better than that. Because if I'm good enough to beat them every time, I'm good enough that I need to be in the context of play, right?
0: I think that you got them backwards. The How? way I understand it. Wow! <laughs> like the achievement player who just wants to win doesn't care that there's a huge gap. They're just happy because they've won the game. That's all they care about.
1: Right. But if I'm, the, if I'm an achievement player and I could get way, way better at a deep game, it doesn't matter if I'm always winning in the context of my play, but if I'm in a stri- if I'm a, playing from a striving mindset, it doesn't matter that I'm always winning to me so long as I can keep getting better.
0: I think that it you have to like factor in both players, like yeah. assuming you have two people playing, like if the person who's winning is the achievement player and the person that's losing is the striving player, yeah then I, that could be okay yeah, but sure. if the person that's like if both players are achievement players and one person is like way higher up. Then the person that's always losing will probably feel like walk away. dissatisfied and walk away. Yep. And if the person that's like winning every game is the striving player, then I think that doesn't work at all. Yeah. Because they're not enjoying a struggle anymore. Mm. Interesting.
1: I think that that's really interesting. I feel like it depends, right? Like I've played games at points of time where I'm happy to play lower skill opponents relatively so long as i'm learning things about the game while i'm doing that it doesn't feel like a waste to me right like as long as i feel like i'm improving overall then it doesn't matter if i'm winning or losing as long as i'm still learning things about the game through the course of play
0: that's interesting i I think like that framework i I would i think we need to get uh t went back on like ask about that because i think like that like improvement player Like, I would just like to ask him, like, does that, where does that fit in? Because it kind of feels like both in some respects, where where your enjoyment of the game comes, like, purely from improving at the game. Sure. Or maybe you're just low-key an achievement player this whole time, and you've just been...
1: No, I just want to understand the game the best (laughs) I possibly can. But also,
0: it's, we have a weird, you know, we have this weird thing where we want to learn about the game so that we can, like, do this podcast and, like, convey the best possible information, which is kind of, like, a very... It's, it's like a unique magic circle to like us and other people that are kind of in this like board game review space. Sure,
1: or like when, super
0: fascinating how that would like impact our experience playing games. Yeah, uh, that probably doesn't align very <laughs> well with the people who are just listening to the show to enjoy games.
1: Right, it's it's like added goal where we want to ex- feel like experts so we can speak as experts about the games we're covering. Yeah. Yeah, which is like this bolted on goal or objective that people don't typically have. I totally agree. I think that let's talk about really quickly, Jake, the difference between Yomi or psychological depth in games and mechanical depth, because I think that these are ideas that I've confused at times, too. So Mm -hmm. part of depth is like the idea that decisions are very hard to make the right. It's a tough call between what decision you should make at a given decision point in the game, right? Like. The better player will make the pick the right option at a tough decision more often than the the worst player and games where there's psychological depth where if I my decision, the outcome depends on what you decide. So I'm thinking about what you will do based on the information that I have and also you as a person and your psychology trying to figure out, will you take the rash option? Will you take the safe option? Will you take the option in the middle? do you think that I'm going to take the rash option so you're going to take the safe safe option that blocks that? All of a sudden, we get into this really, this sort of headspace that we've called on the show before, Donkey Space or Yomi, that sort of depth of trying to think through the art of thinking through what the other person is doing. And that can feel really, really deep. Um, And it can be, but we know that Rock, Paper, Scissors isn't that deep of a game and it's all built on that style. So I think what I'm trying to get at here, Jake, is that there has to be mechanical depth sort of affixed to that sort of psychological decisions that can happen to add meaningful depth, right? Like yeah. you can shortcut the experience of depth, but it won't actually be that deep unless there is mechanical depth that allows for even greater depth in that type of decision space.
0: Yeah, I have a really hard time with this one, with Yomi in particular, because I think that it is something that's like, can be very interesting in a certain context context but a lot of times in games i play uh, that have it this like donkey space it's like i know that you know so i'm gonna do this but you know that i'm no so i'm gonna do this other thing yeah like in effect ends up feeling like super random Mm. and 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 to me like can be a big detractor i think like that type of experience like really really wants like a, like dedicated players like playing the thing like with the same opponents or same skill level opponents like over and over and over to like provide depth and in those initial iterations of the play like battlecon is a great example of this which simulates fighting video games which are kind of like the best example i think of uh, how like yomi can be applied in a really interesting way you know you have like different attacks different like stances right so if like your opponent like takes like a close range attack and you choose to like back up two spaces and do like a range attack like they're gonna whiff and you're gonna like whiff punish them and hit them instead but like until you know your character and everything you're capable of doing and your opponent and everything they're capable of doing your opponent's character and then on top of that like your opponent's mindset and how they want to play that character instead of like adding depth it's just going to add like randomness because Mm -hmm. neither person is actually making very like intentional decisions. But then it can over time, instead of randomness, create like incredibly rich depth after you've played enough. So I think like, I just think it's a tough one that a lot of times, like if I'm playing a modern board game that I'm only going to play like, you know, five to 10 times max, because that's just how often I typically play the games in my collection. And there's like a lot of Yomi in there. I'm not going to like it. But if it's like a game that I end up like loving and it becomes something I play out a ton, then I do like it. So I just really struggle with that.
1: I think that one of the factors that you're sort of hinting at too, Jake, is one of the good things about depth in games is that it rewards players for playing them more, right? Like if your games get more interesting, the more you play them, you're rewarded by playing that game because the game gets better. And right. Yomi means that both players have to be both players have to be on a certain level of understanding of the consequences of their decisions for you to be able to make informed decisions about what the other player might do. Whereas if I know you're just picking randomly, it's not meaningful for me to interact with the information about your previous decisions because I know you're just picking randomly. But if if I know that you understand the consequences of your decisions and my decisions clearly, and you're making decisions based on that, and I also understand that, all this the sudden the amount of meaningful information in this in the game has grown pretty dramatically yeah. so like the, the and this is where depth and yomi overlap and mechanical depth, depth helps yomi decision spaces be some of the deepest because if i have if i only have two options it's not that interesting you're deciding between a and b if i have 10 options and you have 10 options and we both understand the consequences of all those options clearly and we can both parse the bandwidth that that requires that's a really interesting decision space but if we get to 100 options each and we can't meaningfully parse the consequences of those decisions all of a sudden it doesn't feel very deep again because we're just picking randomly and i think that's the interesting point that yomi brings together like this idea of bandwidth this idea of mechanical depth through the diversity of choice and highlights that there's this like sweet spot right where like A game that has a too large of a branching factor, too many options, ends up not being that deep because we can't understand the consequences of our choices, clearly. And a game that's too small doesn't feel very deep because there isn't that much space to explore. So there's this like space in the middle where the game is asking just enough of you. We've talked about this before, right? A game where the game sits just beyond the cognitive horizon that's a deep game where you're constantly feeling like you are putting more of your brain into the game and the game is giving you just a little bit more to think about. And the the consequences of figuring out this system makes you realize that that system is even more interesting than you thought in the first place. And that's a cycle that can go on and go on and go on as you experience what we talked about at the beginning of getting better the more you play.
0: Totally. Obviously, I love board games. And I think that there are a lot of things that work best in board games. But I just wonder if, like, Yomi, were, like, if video games is, like, mm. the best place for that to live. Because in a game, it's difficult to have, like, that many iterations of Yomi, right? Like, happening, like, over and over and over again. Where you could play, like, a fighting game that lasts three minutes. And, like, you have, like, the same type of situations come up, like, a hundred times. Yeah. Right? And you're, like, able to see, like, every time I go into this situation you know, this rock, paper, scissors situation where I'm, like, moving towards my opponent, like, they're shielding, right? I'm, like, learning this pattern because I'm seeing it over and over again. And now I'm, like, able to, like, feel that, like, learning and improvement within, like, the context of a single game. So then I start doing grab to my opponent's shield, which counters it. And then over the course of the game, like, all of a sudden, like, wait, they're realizing that I'm grabbing. So then they're attacking instead of shielding, which beats my grab. And, like, all of a sudden we have this, like, um, like interesting like meta like ecosystem developing over the course of like three minutes where it's like in the context of board games like for yomi to really add that kind of like depth it's hard to have it happening like i think enough in a game in a short amount of time to like really capture people's interest which is why like instead it like asks you to do the same game like okay let's play again you know we'll play mm-hmm. battlecon again and again uh, and then it starts like working out but i just think like for me it's a huge barrier of entry that 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 i think like often yeah i'm kind of repeating myself like provides the potential for depth in a game but it's actually like in your initial plays like reduces the depth
1: yeah i i totally agree um where depth deep games ask more to have the experience that you perceive to be the optimal experience of that game than shallower games where Mm -hmm. you can sort of unlock it really rapidly right yeah 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 totally what else should we talk about jake it do so do you think that there's like factors in games we've talked about a lot of this like randomness can make it not necessarily make deep games less interesting but make it harder to win more often in a deep game than a shallower game i don't know if that was a fair statement but is there like some quality of games where that like we talked about branching factor. You can measure that in, in yeah. terms of a game's decision space or state size. You can measure that. That's just like an actual thing. Anytime you play a game of chess, you could count all of this up if you were a computer, which computers do, and tell you the average branch factor of that game. Is there something about specific games that sort of can unlock what makes games deep? Because if there was, how awesome for designers to be able to then make deep games. And this is the idea of, Frank Lance has this project yeah. called the depth project where there's sort of a group of people thinking through how what makes games deep and is there something about them that does and how do we make games more like that so people will want to play them more. Um and we'll post a link to a really good article of, of from Frank Lance uh, who actually is the person who coined the term donkey space talking through this project and I think a lot of the ideas that we've been talking about are inspired in part by ideas in that conversation. But what do you think Jake? Is there something about games that makes depth measurable?
0: I I mean, I I don't have the answer to like that, but I think the idea from that article that was really compelling to me is that like depth lies somewhere at the intersection between like heuristic planning Mm -hmm. and like raw searching through the decision space where if you have like too much of one or the other, it's going to be a shallower game than one that kind of like meets perfectly in the middle. So I think like, to elaborate on that like heuristic planning is something that i really love figuring out about games which is just like determining like the self-imposed rules that you place on your own game that like helps you compute a decision space easier like if i say like you know key, oh, let's go back to Keyforge, and this is coming straight from our friend aurora's article uh she's a great member of the decision space community also one of the best keyforge players in the world uh and and has a blog called time shapers that i can link in this and she writes kind of about uh, this exact idea as it's applied to keyforge which is so there there are like very strong heuristics that players can use in a game of keyforge uh to just to play better uh on average and one of those things is like To pick which house you want to use out of the three in your deck on any given turn, you can just simply count up how many cards you have available to use of that house by counting the cards in your hand and the cards on the table. So, okay, I have five, I have three cards from the house logos I can play and two cards on the table I can use, that's five. That's the most I have. In most cases, that will be the house that I want to use. Um, So I think like, Games that have good depth on one hand have like strong heuristics that you can like figure out and like learn things about the system. But if those heuristics become so strong that like you never want to break those rules, then it's not a deep game at all. It's actually like a solved game at that case. Uh, And then raw searching is the opposite of heuristics where you're like literally thinking through each possible decision as we talked about at the beginning right I'm, i i'm looking at each house i'm thinking through each decision node for each house and then determining the best move that way um, and if i'm going purely on heuristics like i don't need to do that uh, but i think like what gives KeyForge and, and many games like it such rich depth is you want to use the heuristics up into a certain point in which they break down and you take a move that's actually more impactful that that breaks one or more of the rules that you've set for yourself and like i think it's like it they in the where where you're able to search to find a move that breaks the heuristics but you actually have strong heuristics that you've had to like learn and think about over time and and, and gain from playing the game over and over uh, like those are the moments where like player growth happens and like i think like depth exists in games.
1: I think for me that I, I really like that breakdown and that was a really succinct summary, Jake. And I think for me, what you're talking about is depth, right? Like, yes, I agree. Like the fact that their games, deep games live at the intersection of meaningful heuristics and the opportunity for raw search to matter is feels true to me because heuristics represent learning and improvement at games, right? Like the fact that we can use that heuristic that you mentioned in Keyforge, the Delta, to find the right move X percent of the time is because we've learned that that's a path to efficiency in the game. So I'm better. Like we've been talking about all along, the better you get at games, uh, the deeper games you you can meaningfully improve at through play. Great. Heuristics represent that meaningful improvement. And for me, the raw search represents meaningful considerations it is things that a player could be looking for within the game state that could matter you can't meaningfully search a small game if there isn't things that matter to look at and the best chess players in the world might take 30 minutes to find the right move because there's so many meaningful considerations to make within that game that they have to account for and it might take them 30 minutes to think through every branch so for me if there's one thing I think that the idea that like deep games sit at this intersection is true, but for me, the factor about games that make them deep is meaningful considerations about a game's decision space, right? Like the the fewer meaningful considerations that you can make, the less deep the game is and the more meaningful, I'm using the word meaningful because... Considerations for consideration's sake doesn't matter, right? Like if it's just ninety percent flip a coin, yolo doesn't. Like I could pick that, but it doesn't matter. That's not meaningful. But if I played enough Keyforge that I I'm in a decision point where I know I'm not going to just pick the house with the most cards in my hand and the most activations on the board because I should actually be doing something else. There's something meaningful within the game state that's telling me I should do that. I know that you really want to pick this house. And I have to clear your cards off the board that will allow you to call that house and get the most efficiency. So I'm going to pick house disc so I can use this one card that's going to allow me to clear the board. So I'm meaningfully thinking about what's in your deck, what's in my deck, what houses you've called the last three turns, what you want to call next turn and making a decision based around that. So for me, and this isn't something a computer can measure easily, right? Like computers are, are like good at telling you what are all of the options available, but they're not good at telling you what are all of the meaningful options available and i think that's what we always come back to when we've had these discussions of decision space and like a deep game has a large branching factor potentially and also they're all potential decisions they're not just options right Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of meaningful considerations you have to make to find the right one because they might be almost all about equal except one is slightly better
0: right is that is that definitely i that makes sense in in the lance article he talks about this idea of like the killer move which mm. is like a, a such a clever play that is clever because of the like it's not it's not clever on its own but clever because of the fact that it breaks so many like known
1: heuristics. rules about
0: the game heuristics right yep. not rules figuring that out about a game is something that makes you feel incredibly clever you know to go back to your example about keyforge right you know, ninety-nine times out of a hundred, you're going to pick the house that allows you to activate six cards over the house that allows you to activate one card. Yeah. But a non-zero number of times, the you you your actual best play is is activating the one single card, yeah. and you know that is something that is inherently going to you know separate good players from like masterful players right because good players have figured out these basic heuristics and masterful players know when to break the rules
1: yep and masterful players in a game of keyforge can look at a deck list and know what's going to be strong about the opponent's players deck and make decisions based on that most of the time maybe breaking the heuristics that a typical person would follow because they're trying to prevent a certain situation from coming into play and for me that's depth it's the player's ability to take information available in the game and make meaning out of it by finding the right move, by by finding that killer move, even when it breaks from it, right? Like depth is the ability to take information the game presents to you and say this matters and I'll prove it by winning more often than you will by not engaging with this part of the game.
0: Just as a side, I love that we're talking about Key Forge so much in this because I'm pretty sure we called our Key Forge episode like the most skill intensive dueling card game. So (laughs) it's great that it's coming up so much in a conversation about depth.
1: There's just such consistently interesting, this is like an aside, but such consistently interesting decisions to make in Keyforge because Keyforge is a systems driven design game where like the house system itself is so interesting that you're always making interesting decisions, even if the actual cards you're playing don't feel that interesting in terms of the decisions they offer. Like the, the act of even playing the game, you're making interesting decisions. That have really deep consequences. Yeah, totally. Another, I guess that's one final point that we could touch on is consequences of actions, of decisions within a game, right? That's another important point that deep games have greater consequences than shallower games. Because if you can make a decision that is fairly inconsequential 12 times and not be that far behind your opponent that's not a very deep game so if i have the ability a lot of people talk about this with sort of saying like this game has bumpers or rails
0: like everyone's going to ultimately end up right around 30 points right
1: yeah that's not as deep of a game where there's more room to make mistakes so i think that it's not always an indicator it could be an indicator of randomness it could be an indicator of I think a vast ho of player skill differences, but I think if two equally skilled players uh, or if there's room for score disparity, there's probably more room for depth than in a game where you always average about 20 points.
0: I'm not sure. I agree with that one. I think just because I feel like that is like more of like something that kind of like tricks players into thinking okay. that there isn't as much depth. Like if we played, we talked, Emotep is the game we've covered that I think has okay. like typically really close scoring yeah yeah, yeah, Uh, towards the end of the game because each thing you're doing on your turn has like is going to get you like between one and three ish points on average but the good players are going to be getting you know maximizing their points uh in a way that like if there's a game where i beat you 25 to 24 10 times in a row like there could be a tremendous like that doesn't tell us anything about the depth of the game i think you're totally right yeah there could be a tremendous difference in our ability at playing that game and we could be on like hugely different wrongs on the skill ladder
1: sure maybe that there's something to be said though jake for i think that in the emo type example even where you're fairly close i think the standard deviation of scores divided by the total average score is probably higher on average for the more winning player but now we're like yeah, yeah. i'm being pedantic a little bit and it doesn't yeah matter. no i mean yeah
0: like, yeah it, it, it's like just different levers in the game where like grand austria hotel is a game that has like different internal levers that mean like somebody's could end up with 200 plus points and somebody else could end up with 34 yeah, <laughs> you know yeah yeah
1: but i do think grand austria hotel is a really deep game
0: right it is yeah. yeah no me too so like to me like all that says is like one of these games is like probably better for families <laughs> one mm. of them is better for like you know more like hashtag serious gamer groups uh but like you know I think we could have like an interesting conversation about like what game is deeper between Emotep and uh Grand Austria Hotel because mm. and it's I don't think it's that straightforward. Like one of those, Grand Austria Hotel, has like way, way more way higher branching factor. Yep. Uh you have so many different like sequence and and bandwidth testing things that you want to do on a turn where emotep leans way more into the sort of yomi of like I wanna do this, but I'm have to consider what subsequent players are going to do because any move just like on its own devoid of that context is is meaningless
1: yep and what's your ability to parse the meaningful information in Grand Austria Hotel? Like what what of all the information presented to you actually matters versus Emotep, where you can pretty clearly understand the consequences of everyone's decision. But there are cer- certain things that I'm not necessarily paying attention to when I play the game that Jake is or vice versa. Yeah, I think that there's so much room. Obviously, we're like just barely scratching the surface on the conversations that we could have about both of these topics and i think that we created a whole show to discuss the topics that we're discussing today so it's really refreshing in some ways to like recharge re-energize the discussions we're going to have with these concepts so we can come back and say oh the thing about playing i don't know space Base, or the thing about playing isle of cats is it has this really wide branching factor and the fun of this game is that you can actually ignore half of it or something to that effect.
0: I could see us, like, over time kind of developing conversations that says, like, yes, this decision space has, you know, this size, small, medium, and large, and, like, the depth is of this type. Yeah. Like, whether it's, like, a high branching factor, bandwidth testing depth, or it's, like, a, you know, a Yomi donkey space player interaction type of depth. Yeah. And I think those are meaningful distinctions, and that can give people listening to this a better idea of whether or not like they'll enjoy the the depth that exists in the game. I think what we still need to like work on <laughs> understanding more is like, and maybe it's just impossible without playing the game a hundred times since we can't do that for each show of like figuring out like I, I, you know, this game has small, medium or large depth. Like yeah. I think we could say that with size, but I would feel very uncomfortable, like kind of declaring that about a game unless like I myself had played it Fifty plus times, and even then, I could only say like this feels like it has high depth at fifty plays because I yeah. played it fifty times. And I'm still learning and improving, or I could say like this has like medium depth because I stopped, you know, learning and for me, relative to my abilities as a player, because I stopped learning and improving at this game at play thirty, or it has low depth because after play five, you know, I feel like I am just playing purely on heuristics
1: yeah I think that that's a really good point Jake and I feel like the answer for most games we cover on the show too like the awesome thing about modern game design is so many of them feel pretty deep
0: yeah like, right yeah,
1: right like and and this the splitting of those hairs is born out in thousands of plays right like just what you're saying I also I want to just re- I know we're like running out of time but one other point that I think you made that was really succinct that I want to ha- underscore or highlight is there's different types of depth in games, right? Like in golf, my meaningful considerations could be, yeah, you get a sports example. We're still decision space. Uh, what club to use? What type of spin to put on the ball when I hit it? What's the grass type? What's the weather? Like what direction is the wind going? Has it been raining? Is there dew on the grass? How hard should I swing, right? Like uh, how how tall should I put the tee? Which way am I going to hold? Like what angle am I gonna hold my, my club at? All these things. There's a lot of meaningful considerations and that's all represents depth in the game but then there's also the depth of execution like okay great i know what i'm supposed to do but can i do it and that's another form of depth in games is the ability to, to produce the desired decision like the choice that you want to make to actually do it and i think that a lot of people say like oh that's more common in sports than it is in games and i think that that's true but in, in like a game of keyforge i might have a goal in mind for a specific matchup And then I have to actually be able to execute on that game plan and make the decisions come to fruition of like, to shut this deck down, I can't let them get six disc creatures on the board. I will lose. So I have to make all of my decisions in this matchup based around if they get this board set up, I'm going to lose. So I have to execute that game plan. And I think it's there.
0: Uh, Yeah. We've sort of talked a little bit about that before where like, the execution in sports is probably like most analogous to bandwidth testing plays in games where you plan out this long sequence of things. And now you have to like go back to step one and enact it. Yep. Uh, And and it's not always as easy as it seems, but yeah, I, I love seeing those glimpses of like, you know, Yomi and that type of thing in sports. And it's great. I just shared a soccer video in our mega dexterity games channel in our discord where it's like it highlights this like it's a penalty kick and it highlights this goalkeepers ankles and right as the strikers about to kick the ball you can see his ankles like just shift ever so slightly so like he's going to jump right and then he quickly jumps back and jumps left like and makes the save you know Mm. it's like so it's the only reason you would do that is to bait, you know, yep. your yeah. opponent yep. into doing it. It's like, yeah, yeah. These these are board games. It's just uh, playing on a grass field instead of a table. Yeah, and
1: it, the, what's so crazy is in that example, one of the meaningful considerations is the the micro movements of the goalie's ankles. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like, that's why sports are awesome. Okay. This was a really really good episode, Jake. I feel like we had a, a really great conversation, even if we've just barely brought the shovel out to scrape off the sand on some of these comments and get down to the the hard earth beneath it. But I hope if you're listening and you enjoy this conversation, you'll continue to participate in it with us, maybe by talking to us on Twitter, where you can find us at Decision Spa, uh, or through email. You can email us by finding our email on our website, which is decisionspacepodcast.com, uh, or you can come into our Discord, which is like an online chat room anyone can join through your browser, uh, and there's a link to our Discord in our show notes. Jake, do you have any closing thoughts before we send this episode packing?
0: This is a really fun episode, Brendan. Thank you for uh, making time to record it around my current status of COVID positive. Oh, <laughs> so oh. for just wanted, I just wanted to mention that here at the closing, you know, just in case I said anything particularly silly. I am combating that, but getting better every day. And I just want to also... As always, thank Hembree for our intro and outro music. Reach out.
1: And I want to thank you really quickly before we go for recording on COVID positive because what the heck, you're so dedicated and I'm glad you seem to mostly be feeling okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: All right. Well, thanks again, Brendan. And until next week, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Decision Space. Bye. Bye.